This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, got big plans for the new year? Maybe you're ready to finally launch a small business, start a blog, or promote your favorite passion project. Well, in this day and age, it doesn't exist if it doesn't have a good-looking professional web presence. Luckily, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website. Showcase your work, publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from the look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code KICK to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com and offer code KICK for 10% off. And now, enjoy the podcast. I feel like we should have a clock with the days counting down because what we have set in motion, all of that is at stake. Syria, Libya, North Korea, climate change. We have about as full of an agenda as any administration has ever had. I'm always feeling a sense of urgency to try to get as much done as possible. You're sitting here and you're realizing the stakes. All right, let's do this. What's happening in Syria is beyond frustrating. It was a dark, devastating day. I will never stop trying to stop the war if there's a chance of finding a way forward. People need to be the center of our foreign policy thinking. What Russia has done is wrong. Is there nothing that can shame you? History really doesn't follow a straight line. It zigs and zags. The trend lines ultimately will be in the direction of a less violent, more empathetic, more generous world. That requires individuals fighting for that future. I still believe the most important office in any country is not president or prime minister. The most important title is citizen. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was a clip from a new film called The Final Year, which follows President Barack Obama and key members of his foreign policy team, including Secretary of State John Kerry, National Security Advisor Susan Rice, U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power, and Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes during the final 12 months of the Obama presidency as they try to run out the clock and resolve some of the world's most urgent humanitarian crises from Boko Haram to the war in Syria— and leave the world a better place before President Obama's time in office is up. It's the work of Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Greg Barker, whose previous films have included the acclaimed Ghosts of Rwanda for PBS Frontline and HBO documentaries Sergio, Manhunt, and Homegrown, The Counterterrorism Dilemma. Today, Greg Barker returns to the podcast to talk about how he managed to get such intimate access to President Obama, his top diplomats and security advisors during Obama's final year in office, and how the Obama White House avoided the usual trap of becoming a lame duck administration in that last year by focusing efforts on the area where the president alone can make the biggest difference, foreign policy. 
He reveals some of the heartbreaking humanitarian nightmares faced by U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power, what it was like for Secretary of State John Kerry to come full circle with a state visit to Vietnam, and why President Obama chose Greece for his last overseas stop as president. He likens the annual U.N. General Assembly to a sort of diplomatic speed dating, shares the conflicting narratives that tugged on Obama's final U.N. speech, gives a fly-on-the-wall perspective on the Syrian peace deal that never was, and reveals what Ben Rhodes says was the administration's fundamental miscalculation about Russian President Vladimir Putin. Coming up with documentary filmmaker Greg Barker in just a moment. Happy to welcome back to the podcast award-winning documentary filmmaker Greg Barker. His new film, The Final Year, follows President Obama and his foreign policy team as they try to run out the clock and make the most of the last 12 months in office. The Final Year opens in theaters and on demand January 19th. Greg, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be back, Ben. Well, Greg, this film follows not just President Obama, but other significant players in the administration, including Secretary of State John Kerry, U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power, National Security Advisor Susan Rice, Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, and others. How did you manage to get that level of access? Uh, you know, it, I knocked on the door and said, hey, um, I'm Michael Wolf, and it's all off the record. <laughs> no, I just, I, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it was a process. I, um, I had this idea that, you know, I wanted to make a film about, like, inside government, because I kind of, through my previous work, had been around those, uh, in those halls of power, and it just seemed so kind of different from the way we normally um uh, perceive it and uh, never saw the kind of the reality the hum on the, on the on a human level um you know i never saw that portrayed filmically or uh, anywhere outside of like you know the west wing or any other tv shows um and i wanted to capture that and uh so i just pitched it and people thought it was a crazy idea but they were kind of intrigued and eventually we got enough people across the bureaucracy to kind of buy in to to, to try it and then it just kind of built from there one thing that stands out in this film is the degree to which President Obama and his team seem determined not to spend the home stretch just resting on their laurels. How did they manage to buck the usual trap of becoming a lame duck presidency in that last year? Well, I came to think of it as like a band movie. Basically, it's like a, <laughs> a, a you know a group of people who've been together for a long time, really almost a decade, around this lead singer. Obama and, they, and they're doing the last album and they know that it's the last album and then you know the band will break up and uh, they were genuinely trying to like get as much done as they could and kind of before they handed over power now they thought they'd be handing over to Hillary Clinton or friends inside the new administration which obviously that then becomes this kind of like darker edge to the film where it's almost like you feel like you're you're watching the uh, the Titanic as it sets off on its uh, on its voyage and then you know we all know that the iceberg is looming, but but none of the characters do. And that obviously gives it a whole different uh, emotional and narrative tension that makes it really compelling. But they have were essentially clueless um, during the course of the year. As one might guess from the list of names that I just rattled off, the film and indeed the White House in that final year 
focused largely on diplomacy. Going into this, did you have some idea that foreign policy was where all the action was going to be in that last year? Uh, yeah, I mean, because historically, you know, the last year of a two-term presidency, um, you know, the pres- a president tends to be pretty confined in terms of what they can do domestically, just because they kind of usually run their course. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if you look, Obama got healthcare and all that through early on, and, you know, it becomes harder to get things done domestically. Um, foreign policy, the president has a lot of latitude. Um, and uh, and most two-term presidents tend to focus on foreign policy in their last year, not exclusively, of course. But I just, because um, that's my own personal interest, um, it sort of dovetailed with, with what I thought was likely going to happen in that last year. And that's what we've focused on. Yeah, I suppose when you look at the options of spending the last year focusing on domestic policy and wrangling with Congress just to get something done versus foreign policy where the president has relative autonomy and a lot of impact, that's probably a better use of that last 12 months from his calculation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's often what happens. And uh, um, I mean, certainly from from my perspective as a filmmaker, I just knew that it was we were likely to get more access the foreign policy team, partly because I, I just, it's my expertise. I knew some of the players. Um, and there's also, on a practical level, uh, fewer decision makers in a way. So the domestic team has a, if I was going to do the film about the domestic policy, there's just a lot more people who would have to buy into the idea. And we could, uh, it's a whole different cast of characters. Right. And we, um, by focusing it, it was just going to make it more of a, you know, a, a film that had a clear narrative as opposed to something that was all over the place. But, you know, the amazing thing is, of course, the president is dealing with all that stuff. So you know, he's got his whole, whole foreign policy team, which is doing this one, you know, they're doing with the whole world. And he's got to balance all that stuff in his in his brain. I mean, any president's got to do that. And at the same time, they're dealing with a domestic situation as well. So one of the things I really did appreciate, which does come out in this film, is just the, the sheer pace of... Uh, of what these jobs are about uh, involved and how much we're asking of our leaders to kind of like grapple with very complicated issues, any one of which could provoke, if it goes wrong, could provoke some kind of global crisis. And yet they're dealing with, you know, dozens at the same time. And that's true across administrations. I just want to kind of like get inside that world and, and humanize it some. So, you know, we should criticize, you know, anybody in power when they do stuff we don't agree with. It's just helpful, I think, to kind of have a better understanding of, of what the what their world actually looks like. So our criticism can be more pointed and, 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 and more impactful. Yeah. And just the sheer amount of travel that the president and his team do just seems completely exhausting. Barack Obama did an unusual amount of traveling for a president in his final year. What do you think was the most significant trip during that time? I mean, it was a couple. I mean, I would say you know, we filmed in 22 countries and... Uh, you know, over the course of, of uh, just over a year. And, you know, we weren't even going everywhere. So that was, you know, it's exhausting. And uh, that, that, but that's the pace of those jobs. Uh, I think for, for me, the, there's a couple of things. I mean, the most uh, kind of unforgettable moment for me while it was happening was uh, uh, in Hiroshima when Obama became the first president to, to visit, you know, the peace memorial, Ground Zero, where they we dropped the atomic bomb at the end of the World War II, and and give a speech there, which was a kind of a meditation on the nature of of war um, and how humanity has always sort of 
you know, fought, you know, each other and, um, and kind of reflecting on what that means in the modern era. And uh, it was just incredibly uh, powerful. I never realized, I never imagined at the time that the film would come out with the scene kind of at the uh, one key uh, part of it, where, you know, we're sort of now all grappling with the, you know, possibility of another sort of nuclear conflict. And so, I mean, that's sort of mind boggling. Yeah. And the film has a number of these powerful full circle moments, like the visit to Hiroshima, powerful moments, not just for the nation, but specifically I'm thinking of when secretary of state, John Kerry visits Vietnam on a personal level. What was that moment like for him? Kerry was a, you know, officer in Vietnam and I think that experience uh, shaped his entire life and became a very outspoken anti-war activist, having watched a lot of his uh, friends die for a war that he came to believe was completely uh, pointless, in fact, based on a lie. So then for him to go back as Secretary of State and bring the President of the United States and sort of look at this country that, you know, is so vibrant and uh, full of, you know, vision and energy and still lots of problems, of course, but particularly with regard to human rights, but kind of to engage this this particular country in you know, Vietnam on a totally different level. I think it's just very, I think it's just deeply, deeply emotional for him. You can see it. I mean, the staff all said, where do you see the way he is in Vietnam? And it's, it's true. I mean, he was like totally engaged and I think safe to say, you know, sort of loves the country um, and has some amazing encounters with, with Vietnamese veterans you know, who, who, who he was fighting against. Some who actually witnessed were, you know, direct, you know, battles that he was actually involved with. So, you know, it's very, just shows the nuance of foreign policy, the idea that America can just like retreat from the rest of the world and is kind of, it's just totally counterfactual, whatever your party is. It's just like we are intimately involved across the globe on so many different levels, militarily, economically, um, you know, culturally, you know, it's, it is, it is impossible for us to, I mean, ask any veteran who served overseas, <laughs> they all know that this country is a, a global has a global presence that that you know we we ignore at our peril. Um, for me, one of the real standouts in this movie was Obama's UN ambassador Samantha Power, who just seems determined not to just sit in her office at UN Plaza, but to travel to the worst places and personally bear witness to the most horrific atrocities from Boko Haram to the Syrian refugee crisis and actually interact face to face with the victims in a very human way. I have to say that it was a level of empathy and humanity that I'm not used to seeing from people in such high positions. I think that's one reason I want to make the film. I mean, it's actually, I mean, you know, Samantha Power feels that very uh, on a very deep level, stemming from her days as a journalist and, um, you know, witnessing events firsthand and feeling, I think she feels like no matter what your level of job is, you should engage the world in all of its complexity, which means, you know, getting out there and seeing what's really happening. You know, that is the space of, of diplomacy that that we don't often see. And I think that's one reason that they open themselves up to cameras. One of the things I wanted to accomplish in the film, because I feel very strongly myself that abstract foreign policy issues, you know, are usually portrayed in very sort of dry academic mm -hmm. terms. The world itself is usually, is usually very opaque. What we're actually talking about are people's lives, just ordinary people. And I think it's, it's very easy for all that to become a, an, an abstraction. So I think what Samantha was trying to do is just to kind of remind 
herself, her staff, the rest of the U.S. government, the rest of the U.N. That, and the media. But look, this is these are real people. So going off to camps in Africa full of refugees from Boko Haram or wherever she's going, that's kind of what that's kind of the role that she carved out for herself. But that always informing, you know, you use what you learn on the ground to inform the policy at the highest level. So like going not just the empathizing, but then actually trying to affect change in 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 government that actually can then have real meaningful impact on people on the ground. That's what she would try to do. Yeah. It doesn't she's not always going to succeed, but that is their hope, I think. And that's what we it's very powerful in the film. Yeah, and a good example of her personal humanity is this point during the trip to Africa where a child runs in front of her motorcade and gets hit and killed, and she ends up rearranging her whole schedule to visit the father and offer her condolences. I thought that said a lot about the kind of person Samantha Power is. Yeah, I mean, that was a horrible day. I mean, I was uh, it was a big motorcade going through what was a pretty um, volatile sort of area. There had been a couple of, apparently a couple of suicide bombers on that same road that we were traveling down within the previous week. So we had pretty intense protection and, um, you know, the motorcades tend to travel pretty fast. And I've been a lot of those kind of motorcades over my career. As it happened, you know, I was in the vehicle behind the one that hit the, the boy who was just watching one of the helicopters overhead, part of the security detail. And, and, you know, I think was running across the street to get a better view and, and you know, misjudged how fast the convoy was traveling so he was he was hit and unfortunately we were in very heavily armored jeeps so you know the impact was he was dead immediately so i mean that was for everybody we're all there um so we all felt in a way you know personally kind of responsible so i mean yes she it said a lot about who she is to kind of go back to that through the town and uh go see his family that that afternoon it was a pretty horrible day We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Greg Barker when we come back in just a minute. Support for today's show comes from an innovative shampoo. Introducing Control GX, the first gray-reducing shampoo from Just for Men. Just for Men helps men look their best so they can celebrate who they are, what they achieve, and how they feel. They relentlessly innovate and deliver smart hair care technology that does the work for you, making it radically easy to get that natural look you want. And now, reducing your grays is as easy as washing your hair with Control GX. Just use it as you would your regular shampoo until you like what you see. Subtle, natural-looking results. Shampoo in, rinse out, and move on. It's that easy. Most guys get the results they want in about two weeks. Look forward to a smart look. Because when you look as good as you feel, every date night, every meeting, every guy's night out will be something to look forward to. Get 25% off Control GX using code KICK at ControlGX.com. That's code KICK to get 25% off Control GX at ControlGX.com. And now, back to the podcast. There are people who would argue that global democracy has been in retreat over the past few years, certainly if you look at Russia, Venezuela, Egypt, and other countries. And yet, here was Obama pursuing an agenda of growing inclusiveness and global cooperation in the face of rising nationalism and authoritarianism around the world. Was there any awareness among the people you followed that while they may be right in the end, much of the world was failing to follow their lead, and in some ways the administration was sort of swimming against the tide. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they were aware. And there's a kind of a pretty revelatory debate in the film between Samantha Power and Ben Rhodes, who was uh, one of you know Obama's main speechwriter for foreign policy and uh, really a really close friend of his, so kind of like spoke for the president. Over, over exactly this question, as they were writing and preparing his final remarks to the UN, the question was, is the, is the speech that he was going to give sort of too optimistic or not about the state of the world? And so kind of both are true. It was like, it's, it's the best time to be alive ever uh, because of there's less war, less disease than <laughs> any time in human history. At the same time, we're all aware of the of the deep problems and anxiety is across the world. So, yeah, of course, they were aware of that. And it's really a question of how do you frame it and uh, um, at what level do you then engage those anxieties and those fears without promoting them mm-hmm. beyond what's what's uh, and kind of exacerbating them. If you talk about fear too much, as we see with our current president, people get more fearful. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, I think they grappled with that all the time. So I think um, that really reflected who Obama is himself and what his worldview um, was as president. And frankly, you know, that you can trace it all the way back to his to his upbringing. So saw the world in a in a kind of multifaceted way and that view of how America fit into the world and how should how we should engage with the world. Mm-hmm. And the speech that you're referring to is his final address to the U.N. General Assembly. Ultimately, like you said, he went with the more optimistic speech. So you're saying that it wasn't just that it's a foreign policy swan song. So, of course, the president's going to want to frame things in the most positive light and say left the world better than he found it. You think that it was a sincere reflection of his worldview? Yeah, I mean, look, there are any he's a politician, so there's always always spinning. You know, like, (laughs) this is what I did and look how great we were. I mean, essentially, there's an element of that, of course. But I think broadly speaking, no, I mean, I think it actually reflects his worldview is that 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 these are, you know, when you can what he would say, I think, is that if you're comparing the 21st century to to the tw- the 20th century, you know, look at the death and destruction in the first half of the 20th century with World War One and World War Two. I mean, millions and millions of people killed and and, uh, and displaced um, as a result of conflict. I mean, that we're we're, we ha- we're not living through that now. So, you know, and uh, you know, it doesn't mean it can't happen again. But I mean, that's he's he's saying, look at things, you know, and and you have, regardless of political systems, and you know the kind of democracy deficit you see in places. Um, there's also, you know, you can't argue with the fact that there's a massive rise in, in um, the middle class, the global middle class, and, you know, in places like China and Indonesia. And, you know, he's looking at, at things like that and saying trends like that, that are a direct result of globalization and, uh, and, and, um, economic trade i mean it's no you can't argue with that and that and that that's a good thing it doesn't mean we we're blind to criticize we don't criticize you know other countries for their human rights abuses or whatever but the reality is for a lot of people ordinary people who like all of us are just mostly trying to raise families and live a life leave something for their kids things are a lot better than they were even 20 30 years ago let alone last you know, previous hundred years. So he's trying to, he would, 
paint that broad brush and, and he's not alone. It's like when people, there's a broad consensus about all this. We just don't talk about it that much. Mm-hmm. And we're all familiar with the public image of the president's general assembly address, but behind the scenes during UN week, there are all kinds of negotiations that go on, which John Kerry likens to the diplomatic equivalent of speed dating. What kind of things get accomplished in UN speed dating? This is an example of, of, you know, intense global engagement that we saw from the Obama administration, and which I think is largely normal uh, for how, you know, our foreign policy machinery or diplomacy works. Um, now, I'm not sure that's happening today. But, you know, so during this one, you know, all these foreign ministers and presidents from around the world come to New York for a week and they all give a bunch of people give speeches. So the speeches themselves are, you know, most people don't listen to them. But what happens is behind the scenes, there's, you know, hundreds or thousands of meetings. So someone like Secretary of State Kerry is going to have, you know, within a week, probably 70 meetings with, you know, foreign ministers and presidents from across the world who are all in one place. And so it's just, you can efficiently see people um, uh, very quickly and, you know, you don't have to fly around the world to see them. So you can get a lot of stuff done. So in that one week, they they brought into effect the, uh, and to force the, the Paris Climate Accords. They signed a, peace treaty to end the war in Colombia. They kind of did all these sort of things that you kind of just don't really make the headlines, but are, are sort of actually have real tangible um, uh, uh, impacts around the world. Now, that kind of global engagement, that intensive diplomacy, we are not seeing now from the Trump administration and, uh, and from Secretary of State um, Tillerson. So that is, you know, that is something that has been lost. And if we are not showing up uh, to these meetings or convening these kinds of uh, gatherings, someone else is going to do it. Someone else is going to fill that void. And, you know, it's most likely going to be China because they're the other economic power, Russia in certain circumstances. But, you know, we're just basically abdicating a global leadership role that we've, as a country, have had since the Second World War uh, just because we almost can't be bothered to do it, uh, which is, is is inane because, you know, Anybody who studies any you know global politics knows that you know a vacuum is going to be filled. So you know you don't show up, someone else will. Yeah, and that same nationalist and authoritarian trend that we were just talking about a moment ago also portended the unexpected victory of Donald Trump that fall. I remember throughout 2016, everyone I know who traveled overseas that year would come back telling me how people in other countries wanted to ask questions about Trump. And is this guy for real? Does he really believe this stuff? Could he actually win? As Obama traveled the world in that last year, did he and the people on his team experience some of that as well? Yeah, I mean, they got harassed all the time, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, we see that also in the film. So it's like there's a, you know, a couple of cases where, you know, Ben Rhodes is traveling and some, I think he's in Laos and some exchange students talk to him about, you know, the next president. And it's clear he just thinks that, of course, the next president is going to be Hillary Clinton. And they're like, well, what about Trump? And could he win? He's like, no, 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 she, he has no chance. And don't worry. And, you know, that's kind of and uh, that's kind of how everybody felt. And they were being asked this all the time. So, I mean, they clearly missed it. And um and uh, or or you know we're you know overconfident and believe that um, they weren't blind to Trump, but they just thought he didn't have a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Clearly, 
he did. <laughs> There's an intense moment during that UN week, I believe, when it seemed that Kerry and the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had agreed on the framework or the start of a framework to reopen the Syrian peace talks, but it was predicated upon sort of a test of Russia's commitment by way of a seven-day ceasefire. At first, it's off to a good start, but it falls apart. Remind us what happened there. So the beginning of the year, um, uh, John Kerry said to me and to his whole staff that they were, that Syria was his main priority, you know, and he wanted to kind of achieve some kind of like, you know, peace deal or, you know, some deal to sort of stop the, the, the bloodshed in Syria. And so, and he pursued that, you know, relentlessly and uh, throughout the year with incredible energy. Some would say he was, you know, naive, uh, but regardless, he would just say, we got to try because all the people are, so many people are, are being killed and their lives are disrupted and you have to stop it, do something. And so, and we sort of feel that passion and uh, the complexity of, of that task throughout the the, the, the film. And then, um, you know, it comes to a culminating moment in uh, uh, around these UN meetings in New York in late September 2016, where they think they're going to have a ceasefire on the ground that's going to lead to a to um, kind of a permanent ceasefire. And then it all breaks down and uh, um, stemming really from a um, a sort of blatant attack on a U.N. humanitarian convoy by, you know, either, you know, Syrian aircraft, government aircraft with with or without some kind of support from from Russia or tacit support from Russia. And there's a big showdown in the Security Council where he lays it all, Kerry lays it all out to you know, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov. And, and of course, in the back of our minds now is everything we know about Russian duplicity um, and interference in our election. So, um, you know, and it's uh, it's all, you know, it's all laid bare. There. It's a very powerful moment. And then leads to, you know, Ben Rhodes sort of concluding in the film that that um, perhaps the Obama White House sort of misjudged Putin and his objectives and, you know, which I think historically, you know, speaking, you can really make a strong case for that. So, yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's just like the raw stuff of diplomacy. It, you know, you try, it doesn't always work. Often it doesn't work. Occasionally there are breakthroughs. The breakthroughs are the things that make, you know, make history, um, win people Nobel Peace Prizes. Um, but to, to aim that high, you have to be prepared to, to fail as well. Well, and, and I think, you know, the failure itself is part of, as anybody knows, it's like failure is part of life. And the higher the stakes, the greater the failures. And, you know, just the way it is. Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. After that bombing of the humanitarian convoy, Ben Rhodes asks uh, some people in the room, will there be any consequence for Russia? And someone in the room answers the condemnation of the international community. They all yeah. sort of snicker and laugh. say, you know, yeah, 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 Russia really cares about that. Yeah. Um, meaning they can't do anything. I mean, that's, that's yeah. the reality. Yeah. yeah. You know, that comment almost seems to lay bare the unfortunate limits of what the UN really can do. Um, how do these people cope with that reality? Is a certain degree of sarcasm and gallows humor necessary to get through the day when you're dealing with that kind of serious stuff? 
yes, I think so. It's like, I think, you know, these are, yeah, I mean, they're just people, right? So they're just people and they, you know, I think that particular scene is filmed as they are, yeah, I think Ben had been up all night and he's cursing the Russians and all that stuff. So it's just like, it's just the way it is. You kind of yeah. have to not laugh at the tragedy, but just kind of, yeah, just <clears throat> kind of keep, got to keep going. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, do what you can. And yeah, of course, certain gallows humor. I think it's part of it. You find that in soldiers and all that too. And people just, you know, deal with intractable, often, you know, horrific problems and, you know, what are you going to do? You can't just sit around and be depressed all the time. You yeah. have to keep moving forward because yeah. then, you know, there might be a sick day. The thing is with, with these jobs, it could be a, a success. Like, you know, that same week they, you know, got the climate change agreement ratified and put into force globally as a global mm-hmm. treaty. So you're dealing with all this stuff. That's like the good and the bad all at the same time. Well, when president Obama and his team goes on his final overseas trip, he chooses of all places, Greece, not one of the more important allies crippled economically, not really geopolitically powerful or strategically significant. So why Greece? Was originally going to give a speech on the steps of the, on the Acropolis uh, about the nature of democracy. This is going to happen after the election. And I think talk about the, the Russian interference in our democracy and talk about the resilience of of our system of government after the election, the optics of that sort of looked very different. So they moved the speech inside, but Obama still went to the, to the, to um, visit the Parthenon. And, you know, it's just, he gave this very interesting speech and then the comments in the, in the film and in an interview I did with him sort of right after his, uh, his, his visit up there, where he talked about the, you know, his staff and all of us, people were still reeling of, uh, you know, trying to make sense of the aftershock of the election. And, he was just like, look, this is all part of this long sort of chain of history and talks about going to visit these ancient sites. And you realize that whatever our problems are at the moment, we're, you know, there's this flow, ebb and flow of history, which is just the way things are and, and put it all some in perspective. And that was pretty amazing to kind of to witness as, as well. And, you know, so I think, you know, kind of whatever you think of this president and his policies. I think what it does, I hope the film kind of gives us a window into, into that world. And if you think that he's the greatest president ever, you're going to find stuff in there that validates that. I think they were, you know, naive and outplayed by the Russians and uh, totally missed the boat, you know, when it came to, you know, picking up on these shockwaves that led to the Trump election, you're going to find stuff to validate that too. It's more of an experiential film inside inside the halls of power, the bubble, really, that is the presidency, the modern presidency uh, that we've never really seen before. Well, fast forward to election night and Samantha Power hosts an election watching party with her predecessor, Madeleine Albright, uh, women like Gloria Steinem, and she has all of the female U.S. ambassadors. Clearly, the theme of the evening is breaking the glass ceiling, and they think that they're about to see Hillary Clinton shatter the ultimate one. Describe the mood as that evening went on. Well, it was, I think, like a lot of people uh, probably had similar evenings. Uh, this just had a particularly high-powered cast of characters in it. So, you know, slow you know, dread and creeping realization that, that uh, you know, things were going the way they imagined and, you know, just total shock and, and dismay with some gallows, hum- gallows humor as well. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're still at a party and there's wine and you're hanging out. and But ultimately, this kind of mm-hmm. this sense of... Uh, 
you know, of, of, of disbelief. And I think I was reading some review that called it the, uh, the worst election night party ever. (laughs) 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 Yeah. 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 We just happened to be there with cameras rolling. (laughs) Yeah. And when you talk earlier in the film to people like Ben Rhodes, uh, they have no idea that this is ever going to happen. They are betting against Trump. There's no way in their minds that this could possibly have gone wrong. And yet, even early on, they're still trying to fix things in these last months so that their accomplishments aren't easily undone by the next administration and the next Congress. Do you think that they succeeded in that? I mean, to a degree. I mean, I think they, um, you know, I mean, it's mixed. It's a mixed bag, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. nobody imagined what the Trump presidency in the first year would actually be like. And uh, so they did. I mean, they with Paris, for instance, the, the climate accords, they, um, they did, uh, um, push for global ratification, which can also often take like, you know, years. And I right. think, um, the president had said at the beginning of 2016, we're going to get this ratified this year. We're going to act like, you know, there's no tomorrow and we're going to get this done. So, you know, had he, had he done the normal thing, which is like this treaty is going to take, you know, seven years to, to get ratified globally, which is what had happened with the last climate agreement. You know that wouldn't that would never happen then. So you know they got that done, and so the U.S. can you know kind of withdraw. But the fact is, it's still a global treaty that is largely being abided by. So you know, it's but I think on a broader sense, they you know they the, the kind of you know the Trump foreign policy, if you can even call it a foreign policy, is so radically different from where from where they were at. It's kind of like it's hard to assess, um, and I think we won't know until. Time has passed, you know, how much clearly, you know, the, the dismantling of our diplomatic machinery um, and the expertise within, you know, our government is, that's happening right now is going to take a long time to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it'll take more time if Trump is a two term president or if somebody who follows him has that same point of view. I think the, the, the likelihood is that whether he's one, a one term or two term president. Whoever follows will probably try to rebuild what has been dismantled and and lost. So it's a question of how long it's going to take. And before we go, just for the record, Greg, did you ever hear Obama or any of these other officials uh, call another country a shithole? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) I have never. I mean, I've heard that term used like we've all stayed in hotels that we might call that, various places around the world, (laughs) things like that. But to write off an entire an entire country or, a, 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 you know, a, a group of people like that. It, I mean, no, people don't talk that way. And yeah. anybody who's engaged, I mean, it, like, again, I mean, I've spent time with like American diplomats, American soldiers, special operators, CIA officers around the world. Nobody talks that way. We are all part of this kind of global, we are, you know, they would say we're pursuing American interests, recognizing that we are intimately intertwined with the rest of the world. You know, they, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nobody talks that way about the way about people. They might talk that way about a, you know, a restaurant that was bad or a really bad hotel, like we've all stayed at times, but not about a whole country or people. And it's just kind of, 
Yeah. You know, you know, that's why you're seeing such revulsion across the, across the spectrum on that. So no. <laughs> yeah. Only stable geniuses. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Well, again, Greg Barker's film is called the final year. It opens in theaters and on demand January 19th. Greg, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Enjoyed it. Thanks again to Greg Barker for joining me on the podcast. The final year opens in theaters and on demand this Friday, January 19th. For more information, visit thefinalyearfilm.com and follow Greg Barker on Twitter at at GJ Barker. Support for today's show comes from Control GX, the first shampoo that gradually reduces gray from just for men. Just use Control GX as you would your regular shampoo until you like what you see. Subtle, natural-looking results. Shampoo in, rinse out, and move on. Most guys get the results they want in about two weeks. Look forward to a smart look with Control GX. Get 25% off Control GX using code KICK at ControlGX.com. That's code KICK to get 25% off Control GX at ControlGX.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.